sometimes I feel like we hurry and we pray. And I think sometimes before we pray, we have to remember who we're talking to. And like right now, I'm about ready to talk to the God of the universe on our behalf. And I think in that, it holds such a weight to it. That we're not just talking to anybody. We're talking to the creator of the universe. The one who changes hearts and minds and souls. And so as we pray, would you join with me and never forget who we're talking to. We're talking to the God of the universe. Father, we stand right now acknowledging that you are God. We're not. Father, we believe what Jesus said. Apart from from you, we can do nothing. And so would you right now, through your Holy Spirit, enable me to speak, enable the words to be conveyed and and ears and, and hearts to absorb it in. And Father, would we be transformed further and further into the image of your Son because of our time that we spent together as a church family today. In your precious name I pray. Amen. All right, have a seat. So three people said this to me today. Are you ready for this? Three people. It totally caught me off guard. It costs a lot to live out here, you know, and they want good weather. And so all three of them wanted their money back. I don't know what that means, but uh, anyways... I hope everybody's uh, at least somewhat uh, dry. Here's what we've been going as a church. We've been trying to ask the question, what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman? I think that's a huge question that we need to be asking, not just because we're a church. I think it's the question I think actually our world is asking right now. When I meet with all kinds of different people, it doesn't matter who they are, they really are kind of asking in a lot of ways, what does that mean? I talked about it a couple weeks ago. There's a class that's being offered at the University of Wisconsin because a bunch of young men were asking, what does it even mean to be a man? And I thought, what a terrible place to learn to be a man at the University of Wisconsin. So if you're a Badger fan in here, I'll pray for you. But there's just this side of it, right, where we, we, there's a desperation to understand what does this look like? And so then we go into oftentimes stereotypes, right? We tell a guy, you want to be a man? You need to work on cars. So therefore, Jesus wasn't a man because he never worked on a car. We tell guys, what you really need to do is you need to go hunting and fishing. You need to go do all these different things. That's what it means to be a man. Or a woman sometimes will say, well, what you need to do is either you need to climb the corporate ladder and be a great mom and do this and do that and do all these other things. That's what it means to be a woman. In the middle of all of it, though, the Bible speaks into that and says those things aren't it at all. And we've been thrown around this term to kind of help us understand this idea of flourish. That if you want to know what a real man is and a real woman, they take what it is that God has given to them, the gender that God created them with, and they use it to stir and to cause other people to flourish. That's what it means to be a man and a woman. It's not all these other things. And so what we've been trying to do then is build the case around it. So in the first week, I I laid out this idea of flourish from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we tried to build the case for it out of the biblical text that it comes from the way God created us, that if we really want to know what a man and a woman is, we need to go back to the biblical text. Then over the next three weeks, you had Terry that came up, and, and he talked about both marriage and parenting, and Christian talked about singleness. But again, the whole goal of it was to ask the question, what is it that, that God has created us or the situation that God's put us in to cause others to flourish? That's really what we've been asking. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to take a little look at the church and kind of ask the question then, what does it look like for a church that flourishes? What does is, what is manhood and womanhood look in, like inside of the church? 
Now, in order to understand this, though, you have to understand that when Jesus Christ came to this earth and he talked about this group of people that would follow him one day, he took the idea of family and in a very cool way, he reoriented it. Now, now check out this verse. We know that one day he was teaching and it says his mothers and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, and I love this, who are my mother? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and brothers for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In a very interesting way, what he took with family is he wanted us to understand that while our physical families are important, and he wasn't in any way trying to negate our physical family, our forever family is actually the church. See, when we get to heaven one day, I won't be known as the son of Galen. I won't be known as the son of Peggy. I will only go by one title, and that is the son, I am the son of God, not Jesus, but I'm a son of God. That's going to be who I am, and he's really reorienting, and he's, he's kind of trying to bring it around to help us understand this. Paul talked about it as well. Excuse me, Jesus went on, I forgot this passage, and he started talking about this idea that inside of our family then to reorient our lives, we need to start seeing God differently. He's not just out of touch despot that's kind of sitting back there, but literally he says, when you pray, call him Father. Now, for a Jewish audience, this would have sent them kind of wondering, what in the world are you talking about? It was Israel, yeah, he was, he was a father to them, but really our father is Abraham. They were out of touch with that, and suddenly he comes in and he says, no, when you pray in the way that the kingdom is moving, you're going to call him father. Not only that, but Paul in the book of Galatians kind of started to help us understand that here's, here's what it looks like to be a child inside of this new kingdom that Jesus was putting together. He says this, I mean that the, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. And it was just talking about how a child kind of came into adulthood. He's under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive, and here's the key, adoption as sons. Now here's the reorienting. You ready for this? I think one of our biggest struggles in the church today is that we really don't believe that God is our father and that our church is our family. I don't think we believe that. But what he's doing here is saying, no, there's something that took place that when Jesus Christ came to earth and you were rescued, you were adopted. I'll never forget this, and I, and I never really, I think, understood this, and I, it wasn't because I wasn't smart enough or anything like that, but the image that sticks in my head is the day that I stood before Judge Cody at the Ventura County, the, the family courthouse. I remember her, she, was, she was, grabs the paperwork for the children that I'm getting ready to adopt, and and we were waiting, and she was looking on, you know, to make sure that everything was good and that we were going to be these suitable parents. And then after a while, she kind of signed some things because she was satisfied we'd met the requirements. And then I remember she looked at us, and she said this. These children are now your children. They will be called Brianna Joy Nicewanger, Josiah Todd Nicewanger, Ryan Faith Nicewanger. They are now your children. You have adopted them. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever had that moment where all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for another life. But I remember looking at my wife on our first child and going, oh my gosh, we now are responsible in a unique way for them. She then went on and looked at us and said, they now have all the rights of privileges and the inheritance that they will receive from you, which I started laughing when I heard about inheritance. <laughs> but she looked back at us again and she said, they are yours. Now, when we talk about adoption inside of the New Testament, when you came to know Christ, you are the father's. You have all the rights and the privileges as a son or a daughter. And the other thing that's crazy about it that we learn, especially, oops, oh, shoot, I forgot this picture. Oh. Let me explain this picture. Keep where we were. You with me? Okay. This is a family from Cornerstone, and this was them sitting before another judge. People always ask me, why do you do adoptions at Cornerstone? The answer, because it preaches the gospel. Anyway, next one. But it goes on and it says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, that is Daddy. And so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. All of you sitting in this room may not realize it or not, but you have an immensely wealthy father. Like sometimes I'll sit down and I'll think, oh man, my parents weren't rich and I don't have a whole lot of inheritance I'm not going to get the big house or the big different things, but the thing about it is with all of you in here is because you were adopted by God and you are fully sons and daughters if you placed your faith in Jesus, your inheritance is immense. This is what Paul wants us to understand and I'm just kind of starting to build the case for it is, is that the church is a family. It's your forever family. When we were done and we, we, we were thinking about it, our kids don't look like me physiologically. They don't, they don't in a lot of ways have the same characteristics they are, but they are in all accounts my kids. And when Jesus adopts us into his family, when he brings us to the Father, all the, circuit, all the different things have been met, all the requirements, and now we are fully the fathers. We'll sit there in front of him, and when God looks at us, he sees us as his kids. The hard part about this, though, is we live in a day and an age in which the church is mainly a bunch of buildings, and it's a preaching venue, which is kind of what we're doing right now. We get together for religious activities, we get together for all these different things, but at the core of it, what Paul is going to try to argue, and I think what Jesus is setting up, is that we're not just a religious organization that sits on the corner and absorbs tax-exempt money, we are by nature a family. Every one of us in here, all of our different characteristics, whether we're white or black or red or yellow, whether we're male or female, short or tall, skinny, or I'm not supposed to say the other word, it's just, there's all these different things. We are a family. We should invite Cooling Gang next. But it's just, we are, we're a family. Now, if we don't get that, if we don't understand that, we are never going to understand what it means to be a man or a woman. All it will end up being is, is just this church of loosely connected people that somehow show up, but we are never going to understand what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. I found this the other day, a guy named J.R. Packer, a guy that just recently passed away, a phenomenal author. author. He, he wrote the book, Knowing God. If you haven't read it, I would highly encourage it. But he said this, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. So in other words, what he's trying to get across to us is is how important it is that we understand that the church is a family. Now, don't get me wrong. We can go down a wrong path and over-focus on this, but it's important to understand today we're gonna draw a line through this idea of masculinity and femininity. We're gonna build the case on the fact that all of us in here are part of a family if we've come to know Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing about it being a family. When you come into this family, one of the most important things that you encounter now is that you have intimate fellowship with God. In other words, the day that I came to know Jesus Christ, I was ushered into it, and I may not have understood it, but now I had a relationship with the God of the universe. In fact, in Romans 8, 14, it says you are sons of God and who we are. He goes on in verse 16 and 17, and he says this, we need to understand it, that we are children of God. Not only that, but here's the other thing that oftentimes absolutely blows my mind. We get to call God Daddy. That's what Abba means. Now think about that for a second. I sit down in front of the little foster boy we have right now, and oftentimes I'll sit there because I want his first word to be dad, dad, dad. (laughs) And so I'm brainwashing him. And so I'll hold him and I'll be like, dad, 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 because I'm convinced that needs to be the first word out of his mouth because it's holy. But that's another thing. (laughs) If at some point God allows us to, we will adopt him and for the fact that moment he will be able to call me daddy. It's a term of endearment. It's a term that says that literally we have intimacy with him. And that's what he talks about in 8.15, just to go back to it. That's what it means to be that Abba's father. We also know this, that we're called as adopted children, which we saw a little bit easier, e- earlier in, in Galatians 4, is that we might receive adoption as sons, that we're no longer a slave, that idea being that we're not just a house person anymore, we fuller in the family of God. The other thing about it is, is that your father has changed. When you came to know Jesus Christ, your father was no longer the devil. You now had a good father. You no longer had a bad father. We have a full inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. We sit as people now that have everything. We we now know the God of the universe that owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's the one that controls the entire universe. We are these people that sit in a privileged position. In Romans 8, 17, it says, if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, which most people don't like. We receive new life through Christ's death and resurrection. To be a part of the family means now that we have a father that is good, a father that gives life to our mortal bodies, a father that according to James 1 is the father of lights who rains down gifts upon him, the father that Jesus talked about that said when we pray to him, we've got to believe that he's a good father and he's not going to give us a serpent when we ask for a snake, or sorry, a fish, there we go, gosh, or to receive a stone when we ask for bread. We also know this, that we will live in a unique way. We have a shared common community. We have a shared family now. This is huge for those that maybe didn't grow up inside of a good family. 
So often I'll, I'll deal with young men or, or young women that have come out of difficult families, especially sometimes those that I've interacted with inside of the, the jails, and they'll talk about the fact that their gang has become their family. This group of people sitting here right now, according to Paul, is a group that is literally a family and that this world is dying for something like that. We see this inside of Romans 8. Everyone is there. 1 John 5, everyone who's been born of God is these ones that are included in. We have direct access to God without an intermediary. Christian talked about this. That the moment that we came into this family, I don't have to somehow go through an intermediary. I'm not like our Catholic friends say, I need to go through my priest. We literally now, through the work of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, have access to the God of the universe. No child is more important than the other. The other day, my daughter comes up to me and she goes, Dad, why do you treat Josiah differently? I said, because I like him better. She goes, no, like seriously, like why do you? And I wanted to go, no, seriously, but I didn't. And I said, I looked at her and I said, listen, Brianna, it's just because you're different and he's different. And I treat you differently based upon who you are, but never forget this, I love you both the same. You see this like especially in Mark 10 when Jesus talked about the greater, there is no such thing anymore inside of the kingdom of God. We can be now finally image bearers as God intended. To be brought into the family, we often talk about this, that we want to display God well. We want to display God to those that we come into contact with is that the moment that we become a member of the family, that's what we do. And God starts into into our lives a process that those who he predestined, he is going to become conformed to the image of his son. I've said this before. People always ask me, I don't know if I'm going to be conformed to the image of his son. And I always look at him and I say, you don't have a choice. Once God starts, it's going to happen. There's just a hard way and a harder way. Not only that, but now all of a sudden I can be holy for he is holy. I can be this different one. I can now finally be an imitator of God. And to get to our whole term here, I can finally now cause others to flourish. Or I can bring out the God-given potential in the people that I come into contact with that contributes to creation. I don't think we grasp how amazing and how deep and how wonderful it is to be brought into the family of God and to call God the Father, Daddy. If you're a Christian here today and you know Jesus, let me tell you something. You couldn't be in a better position than you are right now. Now, that's just kind of the big, gigantic picture, okay? I just wanted to make sure we understood who we were as a family before we started talking about what does it mean to be a man and be a woman. So, is everybody with me so far? Everybody there? Yes, Todd, get to the point. Now, where I want to go today is in 1 Timothy 3. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open there. We're going to kind of spend a little bit of time in 1 Timothy 3 to kind of lay out this idea of what does it mean then, or how do we now live and be the family of God? That's going to be the next question. Okay, God, great. Uh, Todd, I appreciate so much all the wonderful information that you've given me. I already kind of understood that. Now, how is it that we go about doing it? What is the process in which this takes place? Well, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is concerned, and you can see in the red, this idea that the household of God behaves in a certain way as they ought, which is the church of the living God. Now, in order to understand the book of 1 Timothy, I always tell Bible college students this when I used to teach this book, is you have got to understand family if you're going to understand the book of 1 Timothy. 
All of it is loaded with family language. In fact, in each and every chapter, you're going to see this. It has a concept of family built within it. In this particular one, this is kind of what I would say is the, is the, the point at which Paul's trying to make to Timothy is, is that here's what I want you to do in the church, Timothy. I want you to make sure that that church behaves like they actually are the household of God. Now, the other really cool thing that's going to happen in 1 Timothy is, in regards to this family, he's going to deal with gender distinction. He's going to talk about males and females, and we're going to also go into the book of Titus a little bit to help us understand that. So in other words, what we're going to do is, is we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be a man and a woman inside of the church? Now, here's what I was talking about with some of the family language. I love this. In, in 1 Timothy, Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith in verse 2, and then he calls him my child again in verse 18. There was something that happened to Paul as he moved along that he started to see the church in this unique kind of light. He would talk about the idea of the church as a body, which is important, the idea of the church as a flock, which is important, the idea of the church as a temple, and all these other things. But towards the end of his life, when he starts to write 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, all of a sudden he starts to talk about it a little differently as an older man. He starts talking about it as a family. You see this in Romans. He calls Timothy my fellow worker. You see it in 1 Corinthians, my, my true son in the faith. You see this in 2 Corinthians and Colossians. He calls him my fellow worker and my son. You see it also when you get into 1 Thessalonians, my true child is what he calls him. In other words, he was telling Timothy, listen to me, one of the marks of the church is, is that I am a father to you and you are a son. In other words, he's speaking generationally. That one of the ways that we have to see the church is that there's a generational reality within it. There's older, there's younger, and he, God intends it to be that way and causing it to flourish. Now here's some of the key things that he's going to then go through in regards to 1 Timothy. In order for them to be the family that God wants them to be, they need to understand biblical truth correctly. That's first, uh, uh, chapter 1, 3 through 11, and 18 through 20. This is really important. Um, so often people will say to me, and this drives me nuts, they'll say, I already know enough. We just need to do more. You mean to tell me you have tapped the depths of the word of God and somehow you've arrived? No, we need to continually begin to understand truth in a more and more way. Verses 12 through 17, and I love this one, mercy and forgiveness, which in my personal family we're working on because we don't do it very well. We need to get to this point where we convey mercy to others, but I would say this, one of the most difficult things to grant to another is forgiveness. If we don't have this, he's saying to Timothy, if you don't build this into the church, your family will fall apart. You need to have protection from wrong ideas and actions, chapter two, verses one through seven. You need to correctly understand how to deal with government, how to deal with all these different things in chapter two. You need to have correct ways in which you look at it. Verse eight I don't want the men to fight against one another. Why? Because I want them to hold holy hands together and I want them to pray. I want the women focused on the next generation and so often we see that as a sexist term but I would say this. I think we forget too often that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. I don't want to call motherhood the greatest job of all time. I don't, I don't mean it that way. I think everything is important but I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact of how important it is to raise kids. And the amount of time and energy it is. Man, my wife has been sick this last week and a half and she didn't schedule it. <laughs> I've had to be mom. I was so ready to come back to work. But it's that reality that Paul is saying is that if we're going to have a church that understands itself as a family, we've got to understand the role of a mom. 
He goes on and he talks about this, that we need to have wise and competent men, which we're going to come back to in a little bit later, to be overseers, 3, 1 through 7. We need to have wise men and women that care for the needs of the body if we're going to be a family. We need to have a correct understanding of the purpose of the family, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We need to treat one another with respect and honor as, as, as the equal children in the family. And the last one is we need to know how to use the money to support the family. So this is what he's building out. He's telling Timothy, look, Timothy, these are all the things that we have to understand in order to be this family that God's created us to be. Now, here's where it gets a little bit where sometimes people push back on me. Because it's a family, in the similar way I would say it's this, is that God has designed the church for men to lead it. They're called elders or overseers, as we find in Titus 1 or else in 1 Timothy 3. Now, people always ask me, why men? Is it because they're smarter? Oh, heavens, no. Better personalities? No. Are they more able to understand the world? No. Here's the kicker. Because Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's it. That's it. Now, oftentimes we want to kick against that, but this is very important. Is that in order for the church to be a family, it needs to act like a normal family. It needs to kind of have this coinciding reality together. And what he says is, is who I want this group of people to be, he says, I want the men to lead the church. Now, that is hard living in an egalitarian culture in which we're saying, no, no, it's, it's everybody, it's whatever it is. Now, this does not make men better. It does not make them smarter. It does not make them anything. But I would say this, if you find a healthy church, you will find active men. An unhealthy church is a group of men that sit around and do nothing. He's laying out for us a principle that says no, that I want the men, like inside of the home, to step out in front and to understand that they're going to give an account. Now, he tells us a little bit about these men in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 and 4 through 5, to kind of connect us to this idea of what kind of man we're looking for. He should be the husband of one wife. You see that in verse 2, and it's someone who does... <clears throat> does not know uh, how to manage their own household, what he's talking about. How can he care for it? So he's supposed to keep his, his family, his children submissive with all dignity. Now, what does that mean? Well, the first one is this. The men that are supposed to lead the church are men that are wild about their wife. I don't mean weird. I said wild. They're guys that their attention and their focus is on this one woman that God has given him, not on many women. They're a guy that in being a one-woman man, in spite of all of the things, understand that this woman I'm responsible for, unlike any other woman on this planet, in which I'm supposed to, Ephesians 5, that Terry talked about, give an answer for her one day and how I cared for her. That means when we choose these men to lead, they are men that don't have wandering eyes. They are men that don't get caught up in sexual sin. They are men that literally have a passion and a love for the wife that God has given them. We're going to talk more about what it means to have a passion and a love, and it's going to be connected to this idea of flourish. Not only that, but I love this next word, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, that word submissive, everybody's like, ugh. Does that mean the dead comes home and rules with an iron fist? See that word dignity? That means he comes in and understands his children and knows how to cause them to flourish. He knows them. He's not this one that comes in as the guy to put his finger down on the family to cause things to happen. He's the gentle shepherd that comes in and knows them and walks with them. 
that guides them and leads them. He's not a cowboy that's, that's trying to get the doggies off and going. He is a true shepherd as he walks with his children. Are his children perfect? Heavens, no. I never want to be at a church in which you look at my kids and expect them any more to be a kid than anyone else. But my role as a shepherd within this is to come alongside of my children and make sure, and the idea of submissive is, is that they are under me and they desire to be under me, which is a key reality. The other thing we find out there in Titus 1, 5 through 6 is we see it again in the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and I love this one, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Debauchery just means that dad steps in in the midst of sin. He steps in and even sometimes at great cost to himself. I look around a room like this and I see so many of you. I know some of you have gone through the ringer with your kids. We cannot raise perfect children, but we can be faithful in raising our children. It's a guy that kids might go off the deep end in some ways. They, and that idea of faithful that you see up there doesn't mean that somehow they're going to embrace Jesus. But the idea is, is that I've been faithful with them. And even if they go off the deep end, I cannot be held to the charge that I did not pour my life into my children how God called me to pour my life into those children. I think the other thing that we're going to talk about is, is that the idea is that they cause them to flourish. Now let's, let's talk about this idea of what does it mean to cause a family to flourish or what are we looking for? Some of the realities is, I would say this, is these men that are elders are men that are not intimidated to encourage the full development of the family. They're not afraid if they've got a wife that sits there and she's brilliant and she understands things greater than he does. I always tell people, and I don't mean to embarrass you in here, Linda, but the smartest person in our church, you may not know this, is Linda McCoy. If you don't believe me, just talk to her for a little while and you understand how stupid you really are. I love, though, one of our elders, Pat, doesn't suppress her. He encourages her. He's even the first one to admit, yeah, she's smarter than me. But hey, join the club, Pat. She's smarter than the rest of us, too. You don't feel bad. It's the Proverbs 31 woman that the man is praised at the city gates, not because he tries to control her, not because he keeps her in and says, woman, I'm in charge, but instead comes alongside of her and helps her and, comes and encourages her to go and explore and do different things. Woman, become the woman that God's intended you to be. It's the man that comes alongside of her and doesn't try to suppress her to make his needs want. She's not there to serve me potato chips and beer. She's there to be used by the king of God or the king of the universe, God. There we go. I'm struggling talking today. It's coming alongside of her and developing her, not lording over her. It's seeking to bring the best out of her. And this week, I've been asking my wife this question. Do you believe I'm bringing the best out of you? She goes, which day? (laughs) We just sat down and we began to talk. And and I said, where do you think I'm weak in? How, How do you feel like I can come alongside of you to bring the best out of you? I'd never thought about it in those terms before. I think even the most militant feminist that might feel this is patriarchal and and, and chauvinistic, my hope is that they would come into my home as one of the elders of Cornerstone and they would realize that my wife is not in the least being held back. In fact, God is taking everything within me as a leader to pour into her life so that she can be the woman that God intended her to be. True leaders never suppress, they expand the role of people. 
Now his point being that these leaders that are men, they've got to come into the church and they've got to figure out now from an Ephesians standpoint, that's where we're at now, how to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, elders don't try to do it all. They don't lord it over people and they somehow become just people that show up on a Sunday morning to hear a message. No, instead they come alongside of people to cause them to flourish. You'll even see this. We want them to grow up as his idea as he moves along there. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves about the very, uh, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, what is it? Good elders help a church grow up. We help them grow up. Now one of the things that I love about this church is I see a group of people that are seeking to grow up in Jesus. Now, Paul's going to help us understand what that means to grow up here in just a little bit. But at the end of, end of the day, a church that does not grow up becomes a church that just sits around and does nothing. He said, this is what the job of your leaders are. This is what these men do. They expand it. They move things forward. They cause it to flourish is the idea. And the final thing is so that it might grow up in this thing a family has to have, which is love. If you're somebody sitting here today and you're feeling like this church is not helping you to grow, now on some levels it might be your responsibility. But if there's things that we are not doing as elders, as the men that are leading this church, we desperately need to know so that we can help you to grow, so we can help you to develop, so that we can cause you to flourish, to be used by God. And this first aspect of it, that's what men are. Now, Oftentimes people will ask me, hey Todd, what is it that your parents did that caused you to want to become a pastor? What can parents do that will cause them to maybe want to be a missionary? Number one, you can't. But number two, your job is not to raise that. You're just supposed to raise great men that will eventually one day hopefully maybe be fathers or single men that know how to cause people to flourish. The idea is don't raise a pastor or a missionary, just raise a good man. And when you raise a good man or you raise even a good woman, God will use them the way that he wants to use them. You don't have to focus on all those other things. Just train them up to love Jesus, which is what, what uh, Terry talked about last week. Now, here's the key. That was the big part of it. Now, when it comes to all everyone else that's inside of the church, the elders that provide this atmosphere in which people can flourish, but then flourish to do What? Well, in 1 Timothy 5.1, he talks about this idea of how relationships are supposed to happen. He says, do not rebuke an older man, speaking of Timothy or any other person that's in the church, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So what's the job of the church in regards to a family? If you're someone that's older in here, you're supposed to spiritually parent when we come to Titus 2, and I'm going to go back here in a little bit, you'll see this. He talks about these older men. They're to be sober-minded. And, and later on in verse 6, they're to be sober-minded so that they can spiritually parent the younger men. So often people come and go, hey, what program are you going to do next? What thing are you going to provide? What's this? And I want to look at them and say, just go pour your life into a younger man. Well, where do I find them? Right there, 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 there. They don't want me. Are you kidding me? Right now, the generation between 25 and 35 is dying to be spiritually parented. They're dying. In fact, I'm seeing a lot of young people between 25 and 35 doing this. By the way, that means they agree with me. Now, you all have to seek it out. Don't think you can just sit there and somehow be expected to choose teams like playground ball. But what the church is supposed to do and the expectation is is that everyone is to dive in in that way. 
We're to look around. In fact, there are plenty of young men that are sitting around here and young women that need to be spiritually parented. That's the idea. They want to be told, man, this is how life is and this is how it works. One of my joys is sitting down with, with Rick and I'm gonna embarrass you. I'm gonna pull different people out here. We were meeting a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, and he said, you know what, I'm really starting to kind of get what this is. And I said, what's that? He goes, I've just been grabbing younger men, even though I don't really understand them, and just spending time with them. I said, what caused you to do that? He said, we just started meeting. In a lot of ways, he accomplished exactly what the church is supposed to do. You'll see this later on when it comes to verse three. Older women, likewise, are to be a certain way. I want the family to be this way. Why? To train the young women to do what? To love their husbands. Why love their husbands? Because it's not easy, husbands, just in case you don't know that. To love their children. Why? Because that's not easy. To be self-controlled, pure, understanding the role inside of the home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, we're just diving into each other's lives. It doesn't require a program. It requires organization. I'm not saying it doesn't. But I would even say this. Not only are the older supposed to do this, but you're supposed to just continually grab somebody that's younger and put time into them. My daughter does this. The thing I always encourage you, and by the way, if you're a Sunday school teacher in here that lets my daughter come hang out with you in Sunday school, thank you so much because my daughter gets to pour her life into younger people she's learning what it looks like to be the older sister to somebody else and pour her life into somebody I bring her in here because I want older people interacting with her my daughter and my son do donuts all the time even though I know having them there to do donuts is not efficient I totally get that but what do they need they need older people in their lives There's this myth as parents that somehow thinks the only one that can raise my child to be a godly man or woman is me, baloney. The Bible says it takes a whole church to raise them. A whole church to pour into them, to teach them different things about manhood. Spencer McCush isn't here today, but on my son's first day of school at Grace Brethren, he calls up Josiah and he goes, how was your first day of school? I about started to cry. And Spencer's not worth crying over. In a very cool way, he understood that this is much more than just two families there. He is part of the family that we're a part of. It's called the church. It's looking around and just realizing if you're younger, you're older, whatever it is, to pour our lives into each other. And that does not require a program. It does not require a class. It does not require all the things that we think. It's just purposely and intentionally saying, I am part of a family and being a part of family, I'm going to invest my life into other people. So here's the program. Are you ready? If you're younger, seek out the older. If you're older, which there's a lot of you in the first service, <laughs> seek out the younger. There's our program. Any questions on the program? Now, with it, there's a, there's a sheet inside of your bulletin. If you look at it, there's a little thing that says in there, I've either got questions or I would like to inquire about how to do different things. If you're somebody here that has heard what I've just said right now and understood this is the role of the church to be this family and you'd like to fill it out, fill it out. Now I think, is Chris Hay in here today? Oh, is he over in his thingy bopper? No, his wife's here. She represents him all the time. Chris doesn't like coming to church. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But he's gonna get these things. Now listen to me. There's a lot of you sitting there right now going, you know what, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, either you need time poured into you or you need to pour time into others. So my expectation is I should see a lot of these cards. 
bro, I don't have time. I don't have time to invest into people. I would say this, make time. The most important thing that we do as a church is invest ourselves into other people. We'll find places for you. Terry's sitting over here. If you want to come serve inside a children's ministry or student ministry, I promise you there's a phenomenal place over there to get involved and dive into that. And not only that, this is what you'll find. When I did children's ministry and student ministry for the longest time, I realized I got out of it way more than I put into it. In other words, pour your life into each other. And here's the last thing. Understand this, that we as pastors and elders don't have it all figured out and you're under your breath going, that's not a lie. We don't. Why? Because trying to figure out how in the world to lead a group of people in the United States, I'll be honest with you, is just sometimes difficult. To shepherd inside of the United States is just, it's hard. In a lot of ways, we want it done our way. Right? That's how we are as Americans. Do it my way. And all the while, we're looking at Scripture and just saying, gosh, we're just trying to figure out how do we as a church truly be a family? We're going to make mistakes. We've made a lot of mistakes. But regardless of the church, every church, just like every family, there's some dysfunction, isn't there? I look at my own family. I look at my uncles and my aunts. Every family's got a crazy uncle and a crazy aunt, don't they? Just some of them have more than others. We have them around here. But the thing about it is, though, is that the church must seek to be this. If women are going to be women, the church must pour into them. If men are going to be men, the church must pour into them. This is the best and the safest place to learn what it means. But it requires a church to say, you know what, if that's what Scripture says, then we're going to figure out how to do it. So if you've got that card, please fill it out. And here's the other thing. One of the ways that we deal with dysfunction is we take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis because the Lord's Supper is designed for dysfunctional families. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul was writing. And when he was writing his letter to the, to the Corinthian people, he was writing to a church that was out of whack. And he brings into it the Lord's Supper in eleven seventeen through 34, and it's almost like, I know you're out of whack, but just sit yourself down in front of the Lord's table and remind yourself of what the Lord's table is all about. It brings us back to what I spoke on at first. If you're somebody in here that knows Jesus Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. You are forever set apart as his true child. Nothing can ever separate you from him. Nothing in any way can snatch you out of his hand. You are his forever child. You have a wonderful inheritance. There are treasures stored up for you. You've got a place you're gonna live for eternity. You've got a world that you're gonna be able to explore, but more importantly, you're gonna be able to enjoy him forever. You have family. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we are dysfunctional. When we sit down and take the table together, what we're saying is, is we're part of a family. And so today what we're going to do with all of us, and we're going to kind of have those two rows on the outside and this kind of front section, we're going to have you come up and you're going to grab the Lord's Supper elements from here. And so there'll be elders and, and different leaders here to encourage you as you take it. We're going to grab it and we're going to go back to our seats. For those of you in that back section, you're going to go back into the hall back over here and you're going to grab the, the, the bread and the, and the cup and you're going to bring it back in, but we're going to take it together. So what I'd like everybody to do, I'd like everybody just to stand up, 
all right? You are children of God. You are blood-bought. You are set apart. You are ones that whom God, what he started in you, he's going to finish. But on the night that Jesus betrayed, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus took the cup, or the bread. And in grabbing the bread, he held it up in front of them and he said, this is my body that's broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After they'd eaten the bread together, he then took the cup and he said, this cup is is the blood of of the new covenant. A covenant that's unlike any other covenant that's not a temporary covenant, but a covenant that's forever. What I promised to do, basically, Jesus was saying, I will bring it to its conclusion. As we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded again, God is our Father, and we collectively as our kids. So if you want, you can come up. There'll be tables up here. We're going to start singing. Man, just come up and enjoy. Take the Lord's Supper. Bring it back to your team. We're going to take it all together, all right? So let's go ahead and let's, let's take it together.